Okay, well, it's really, really good to see you all. Uh, it's good to see some uh, new faces dotted around, and like I said, it's good to see Dawn back from holiday. I didn't recognise her at first, a so slightly different shade. <laughs> looks like she had some of the excellent weather um, compared to us at the minute. Um, what I thought, I was listening to Radio 2 um, because that is the only radio station worth listening to, um, which Hannah disagrees with, but she's wrong. I'm pretty sure it is divinely inspired, it's that good. Um, and it was on, what's it called? It's, um, you know, the music quiz they do in the morning with uh, that bald chap, Ken Bruce, I think. Is that right? Might be him. One of the people who I don't really understand the voice of. Uh, and I'm going to play you one of the songs, and I want you to tell me what song it is. the Scorpions, an absolute classic, Wind of Change, and I've entitled uh, this afternoon's sermon, Wind of Change, because um, I thought, you know, that, I was toying with a few different titles, and when I heard that, I thought, yeah, that, that, I think that'll work. The other one I was toying with, with was Earth, Wind and Fire, um, but, you know, that's beside the point, because I've not gone for that, so we've gone for Wind of Change. We're carrying on our series in the Book of Acts, in our series, Mission Unstoppable. What a great name for a series that is. But when we, this is a, it's a really, really interesting passage. And when we come to it, I think there are two approaches we can take. There's either uh, what I'm going to call the, the micro approach. I've been talking to Tim a little bit about cameras this week. So, um, so, like my, so our two approaches are either micro or macro, and they're ways of taking photographs as well. Um, so that's kind of as well beside the point. So there's the micro approach where you zoom right in and look at the kind of the immediate, the here and now of what's going on in the passage. Or the other one is you zoom right out and see how the passage fits into the kind of panorama of the whole Bible. Does that make sense? So you can either zoom in and see what's going on in the immediate, or you can zoom out and see what's happening, uh, kind of how that passage fits into the here and now of the full story of God in the Bible. What we're going to do really today is we're going to focus on God's big picture, on the kind of macro scale, um, for a couple of reasons. One, I think when you get a good idea of God's big picture in the Bible, it is unbelievingly, heartwarmingly delightful to see what he's doing throughout history. Um, And the next reason is that Pentecost that we're going to look at today is Pentecost is a a once, kind of, it's a one-time event but it is one of the most important events in all of history. It's so important that you know, it goes along with the birth of Jesus, the resurrection, it's that important. And it happened once for you, for me, for the church, and for the world. However, before we look at God's big picture, we're going to zoom in a little bit and look at the kind of micro... I've written it small so that you know it's the micro. Um, we're going to look at a few of the details so that when we zoom out, you can see why, uh, hopefully, why it's important. So, let's, um, let's pray, and then let's jump into this. Father, we thank you that you are good. Father, we thank you that we know that. Father, we thank you that your word 
is good. Father, we thank you that, um, yeah, that you've given it so that we can know about you, about what you've done, about what you will do, and about what you want to do with each of us. Father, we thank you um, yeah, for your word. We just thank you that we can know you because you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in it. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for what he did, and for what he continues to do for us. And Father, we thank you for your spirit that uh, makes us alive again, and it helps us to understand your word so that we might know and love Jesus better. Amen. Okay, so we're in Acts chapter 2. Let me just read the first um, few verses again, so you've got a bit of a good idea what's going on. So if you've got your Bibles open, that's really helpful. So it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard, the, uh, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? And he goes through this great list of places with funny names. We've got uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, uh, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, near Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. Okay, so that's the passage we're going to spend some time looking at today. However, first of all, I think it's probably fair to say that sometimes the church worldwide fails to cover itself in glory. Sometimes people look at the church and think, it looks a bit of a mess. Sometimes people look in and think, why are there so many different types of churches? You know, sometimes, um, yeah, it doesn't give a great picture of the God that unites us all. And this passage, and ironically and upsettingly, through church history has been quite a divisive one. Uh, there are whole denominations and church splits, and there's antagonism over this passage. And I don't, wanna, I don't want to say, and I don't want you to think that I'm saying that, that like we or I have the only right way of interpreting this passage uh, this afternoon. Because that's, one, quite arrogant, and um, two, there's an awful lot of stuff that we'll not be looking at this afternoon. Um, and there's an awful lot of stuff that is very interesting and very exciting. Some people have spent their whole lives looking at this passage and have come to different conclusions. And in fairness, that's the same about a lot of different ideas in the Bible. And the debate kind of still rumbles on today. And I don't think it's particularly productive of us to, you know, to try and get into which side of this argument are we going to fall on. I think when good, godly people who definitely love Jesus, who believe the Bible, and who want to give glory to God differ over something... I think the spiritually mature response is to say, do you know what? That's all right. If you love Jesus, if you believe the Bible, if you want to give glory to God, and we differ over something that isn't the most important thing, which is the gospel, then the spiritually mature thing to do is to say, do you know what, let's just agree to differ. Unfortunately, through history, the church hasn't done that. Sometimes they've split and done different things. Sometimes it's because things have made church seem a bit different for people, so 
one group that believes something slightly differently may do a different kind of church, and some people may not like that. Um, and that's, you know, this passage has been, unfortunately, a bit divisive through some of church history. But as we look at it, let's just try and see what's happening. When we come into it, we see that there are 120 people, uh, and apparently they're in a house, um, in a room in a house. We're not quite sure how big this, like, if they're all crammed in to a really little room, or if they were in a nice big room with a lot of space. Um, it doesn't say they're all sat in rows or anything like that. It just says that in the room there were 120 people. There was the disciples, um, you know, Jesus' original disciples, and some other believers. And they're in a room and they're praying. Essentially, they are an isolated, holy huddle. They're definitely not the most kind of charismatic bunch that you would think, I want to start a worldwide missions organization. These are not the people who you would naturally pick because they're sat in a little room, a little holy huddle, having probably a really kind of nice time together, but wondering um, what's going to happen. They're they're believers, they're prayers, but they're timid. They're a bit shut off from the world. They're a little bit disillusioned maybe. Um, I mean, that might remind you even of some churches today. They didn't know if Peter was going to step up and lead the church, as Jesus had told him that, that he was going to do. And they really didn't know, well, they kind of knew, but they weren't sure how they would uh, do what they were on earth to do. But it is straight into this kind of limp and lifeless and corpse-like situation that God, by his Holy Spirit, suddenly shows up. Firstly, he does it by the sound of this mighty rushing wind that fills a whole house. It's It kind of comes out of the pages in a way that this noise is almost tangible. You could almost touch this noise. It was that obvious to them. Secondly, uh, there's the kind of idea of this massive splitting up tongues of fire from a big fireball. Um, So it's, you know, something exciting is happening. Even if the house is on fire, it's still exciting. And the last one is uh, the kind of spiritual Rosetta Stone. Um, I don't know if you know what the Rosetta Stone is, but that's, it's a, it's, um, you know, it's a company that helps you to learn different languages. You essentially pay them a chunk of money. They uh, let you download a program onto your computer or send you CDs if you haven't got a computer, and it helps you to learn new languages. So the three ways that the Holy Spirit kind of shows up at this point is the mighty rushing wind, the fireball, and this kind of spiritual rosetta stone. Um, we'll get onto those a bit later on. However, this causes some amazing changes to the church. You know, this little fledgling church of 120 people, now we probably think of that as a massive church, but these are the only believers really in the whole world at this point. So only a little small group. These things that happen change the church unbelievably. The church moves out of its building, wherever it is. We're not quite sure where this building is, but it moves out of its building. En masse, they get up and they go out. God, by his spirit, mobilizes the church to go to the world with boldness and with power. That is what happens at the first Pentecost. It's amazing that I think churches so often spend time doing what they can to drag people inside them by like hook or by crook or tricks or by cake, whatever it is. We try to get people into the church. But at Pentecost, the church goes out to find people. Pentecost is the birthday of the church They didn't have any cake or any tea and coffee or anything like that. But what they did with the church's birthday 
was metaphorically they unwrapped themselves from the building and they came out to play. So we're going to see how that works out later on. So like I said, Pentecost is a one-off event. It, it happened once. It's never to be repeated. God has never removed his spirit from his people on the earth so that he doesn't, he doesn't need to come again because he's still here. He's still working by his spirit from that day to this. So it doesn't need to be repeated, but there are some lessons uh, that I think we can take from this account for us for today and tomorrow. The first one is, as I said, they, they, they received the spirit and they went out. The people of God are meant to be an outgoing people. They're meant to be Jesus-sharing, they're meant to be spirit-driven and a God-glorifying community. They're not meant to be a timid, 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 uh, inward-looking, quiet and inert prayer group. We definitely need to be a praying community, but one that prays in a specific way. And I have three things, hopefully, to help us look at this. So, as we, we're looking at praying a lot more this year for the different things that we're doing, and I think uh, from Pentecost we can take three kind of applications for prayer. Firstly, when we pray, we want to pray from a position of victory. We pray from a position... That's a really difficult sentence. I should have come up with a different one. We pray from a place of victory because the disciples then, and we know now, that Jesus' death on the cross was victorious over Satan, sin, death, hell, and demons. So as they come to pray, they come knowing that they are on the victory side. They don't think, I really hope we've got it right. We really hope that we're on the right side of this battle. They know that they stand on the victory side because of Jesus. Secondly, we pray from a place of assurance. Because Jesus died for sin and he rose for our salvation and he ascended into heaven showing us that we're in God's presence right now by his spirit. Because he is. And lastly, we, we should pray with boldness. Of people who are spirit-filled, who are God-anointed and appointed gospel-sharing people um, centered around Jesus. So that's all the kind of, uh, more the micro stuff. That's kind of what, what went on uh, at Pentecost. So let's kind of finish the introduction um, and then look how the, this fits into God's big story. But I want to just give you um, a, a definition and you can think about this and think if you think that that's right. I think it's quite important to know at this point what a Christian is. Because these early disciples were Christians. And, um, and I think this is my definition of what a Christian is. So you can you know, think about it and ask me about it afterwards. Um, so this is my definition. So I'll read it out so I don't get it wrong. So a Christian is a true human being. They know who they are, that they're saved by God's grace in Jesus, and by the Spirit they're brought into God's presence forever. And they know what they're for. They're empowered to live a truly full life for Jesus, wherever they find themselves, by sharing the good news of Jesus in word and deed. So that's what I think a Christian is. Nobody's shaking their head? So we'll go with that. I did turn the heating down to make sure that nobody would be just kind of drifting off, but it still feels quite warm. Um, so please do try and stay awake. So after that, uh, let's look at the, the macro picture. The macro picture is the kind of bigger picture, which is why macro is significantly larger than micro on the screen. 
um, and I've got it under three titles. The first one is Wind of Change, which is because, you know, the Pentecost sounded like a mighty rushing wind, and there was a big change. Title, Wind of Change, and it's a song by the Scorpions, um, great band from the 70s. So do look them up on YouTube or something like that. So let's hold all the kind of detailed stuff of, of the kind of immediate what went on uh, to one side, and let's kind of zoom out. And I heard a preacher the other day use this phrase. He used the phrase, let's kind of go up in a helicopter and look at the mountain range of God's story. So that's a kind of, it's quite a nice phrase. You kind of go up and you see just the kind of like the high points of what God is doing throughout history. So let's uh, steal that from him and use that today. If you flick back a page, in your, or perhaps flick back two pages in the church Bibles, uh, you'll find John chapter 20. Ian mentioned this when he did his introduction to the book of Acts. And Hannah was really, you know, uh, really taken by the fact that Ian had jumped in a sermon. You know, because he'd, uh, he'd given this, this kind of picture. So in John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, it says, Again Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a little bit odd. And I'm not quite sure how Jesus did this. I don't know if he kind of got them one at a time. Got Peter said, you know, Father has sent me, I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Next one, James. Carried on like that all the way through. Or if he lined them up and said, the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And then as if he had a massive birthday cake, ran down, going across all of them in one big breath and then said receive the Holy Spirit to all of them. I'm not quite sure how he did that or if he just did it kind of a bit more English and matter of fact as receive the Holy Spirit um, in a very nice and polite way. We don't know how he did it but that Bible says he said the Father has sent me, I'm sending you and he went receive the Holy Spirit and then and that's what he did. So he breathed on them. Uh, at Pentecost you've got to keep, keep that idea in mind that Jesus has done that just a couple of chapters earlier in John's Gospel. At Pentecost, when they're sat in a room, just all the believers in the world, 120 of them, are sat together, and there's this sound of a mighty rushing wind. Can you just imagine if their, their minds jump back to Jesus, blowing on their face? You know, but this is a bit bigger because it doesn't say that Jesus blew with the full force of creation on them and they like flattened them when he was with them in John chapter 20 just as he blew on them but this is bigger this is like what Jesus did but so much bigger and better almost and it's not just on the 12 it's on everyone who was there and for the disciples I think they would have known what this meant so in John chapter 20 he says the father sent me so I send you. Receive the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, he doesn't kind of say anything, but you get the noise of a mighty rushing wind. I don't know if this will work, because this is meant to stop like wind and pop, but that wasn't brilliant. I'll be honest with you. But at least that works. So, um, so you get the idea of a mighty rushing wind fills a house. But if they jump in their mind back to what Jesus said last time when he did that they'll be thinking actually this means the father sent him and he is sending us 
the, the, the idea that uh, the disciples, there's 120 gathered in this room, are now God's sent people to the world. Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, and he also writes Luke's Gospel. It's a kind of two-part work. You know, there are some kind of amazing link-ups as well as you look through both books. In Luke chapter 2, we see God coming into the world physically as Jesus. He's born in Luke chapter 2. He grew up, he taught, he preached, he did miracles. He died, he rose, and he ascended into heaven. In Acts, there's a kind of great uh, great parable, a great parallel here with the church. In Acts chapter 2, God comes again into human history by his spirit and he comes inside all the believers who then, because of the spirit, grow spiritually. They teach, they preach, they do miracles. They died and they went to be with Jesus. Acts and Luke both start with a birthday. Luke starts with Jesus' birthday. Acts starts with the birthday of the church. Another song, Great Balls of Fire. Um, I didn't know if that was inappropriate or not, but I thought I'd go for it anyway. So, the next, so we've had the sound of the mighty rushing wind. Next, it's the picture of tongues of fire that, that land on the disciples' head. Fire is quite a common picture in the Bible for different sorts of things. It can be God turning up on the scene, uh, God acting in different ways. It's also a picture of purity. You know, kind of if you heat up a metal, all the, the rubbish comes to the top and you can scrape it off and you can have a pure... Uh, pure metal, or a picture of judgment. But can you imagine what it, would it, what it would have been like that day for the disciples sat in that little room, all 120 of them sat there, and this ball of fire t- appears. You know, there's a bit, isn't there, in the, what, the beginning of the Gospels where um, the disciples rip a hole in the roof. Now I don't know if this fireball kind of burns its way through. And it was God kind of having a bit of a joke, saying, look, you've ripped somebody's house roof off, now I'll do it, in a slightly more spectacular way. We don't know about that. But this fireball appears in the middle of the room. And if you were one of the, the kind of ordinary Christians in that room, could you imagine it maybe thinking, oh, where's it going to go? Is it going to land on, on Peter's head? Or, or will it maybe land on, on Peter and James and John? Because they were Jesus' top three. Will they be the ones who were chosen to to bring God's message to the world? Will they be our our new leaders for our church? But it doesn't do that. It splits into little tongues of fire. And instead of just landing on Peter, or Peter, James and John, it lands on every single one of them. They all get a tongue of fire on their head. And they become the, the world's first Miners, You know, they can go down the pit now and see where they're going. No, that's not true. I did also think that they would look a little bit like birthday candles uh, for the birthday of the church, but that's not what it's about. They become God's commissioned leaders for the church and for the world. They experience God's commissioning on their life and quite literally on their head as they go out. In the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament people of God knew that God's Spirit would would like, indwell some people to lead uh, the whole nation of Israel. And those special few were the prophets, the priests and the kings that God chose to lead his people. This thing keeps bending. However, the difference here 
So instead of it just landing on one, two, or three people like it did in the Old Testament, and those people were kind of the go-between for the people to God, now God's Spirit is for all his people. There's a bit in um, the book of 1 Peter. So Peter writes a few letters, a couple of letters that are put into the Bible. And Peter describes Christians in this way. So if you can just remember the prophet, priest, and king from the Old Testament. Um, Peter describes us as a royal priesthood who are to proclaim God's excellencies or greatnesses. So we have the royal, God's royal people like kings. We're a priesthood like the priests and we're proclaiming the good news of God like the prophets of the Old Testament. We become, by the Spirit, God's chosen people to take his message of the gospel to the world. But when I was reading through some commentaries on this this week, they said, where have we seen something like this before in the Bible? Where have we seen a self-existent fire, one that doesn't need anything else to to keep it going and it doesn't kind of burn out because it's run out of fuel? Um, Let's throw that out there. Anywhere in the Bible where we've seen another kind of self-existent fire that didn't burn up what it was burning. Bang on that man. Exodus chapter 3, we see Moses uh, at the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, God turns up again in human history in a really tangible way. God meets with Moses. Um, At this point in Moses' life, he's a a sheep herder, a shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro. Um, Not from Jethro at all. Previously, he had known extravagance and power and position. He was the adopted daughter of Pharaoh. He was brought up in Egypt. He knew what it was to be wealthy. After a slight run-in with the law, where he killed a man and ran for his life, God meets him in his semi-retirement. And we're assuming at this point he is fully retired from murder. So there, God meets with him. And he says to him, this old shepherd, your life isn't over yet. I have things I want to do with your life. I want you to take my message of rescue and salvation to my people, Israel. It wasn't quite that simple for Moses. It took him a bit of support and a bit of persuading. Um, but eventually, God used Moses to bring his people into the promised land. It took him quite a while. But there's another great parallel with the story of Moses in the Old Testament and with Pentecost. Now, Pentecost itself means 50th, um, because like, you have a, a pentagon, which is a, a shape with five sides, and, and Pentecost means 50th. In the Old Testament, you'd have the, the festival of Passover, where they remember the exodus from Egypt, where they would put the lamb's blood on the doorposts, and the firstborn died of the houses that didn't have that, and Israel left Egypt. So that would be the Passover. And then there would be the festival of, of, I think it's pronounced something like this, Shavuot, or Shavuot. It's the Jewish festival. Um, I'm not brilliant at Hebrew, so that's the pronunciation we'll go with. And it means the festival of, of weeks. And there are seven weeks. So you'd have Passover, seven weeks, seven sevens of 49, and then the following Sabbath day would be the 50th day, and that would have been Pentecost. And that was the um, that would be the, the celebration of kind of they would have the harvest you know it would be, they would celebrate um, yeah getting through the Red Sea and on the 50th day they would have their Pentecost harvest celebration 
but also Pentecost became the celebration of something else a bit later. Pentecost, they'd worked out about 50 days later from the Passover, was the day that Moses met with God and he received the law of God on Mount Sinai. Historic, the Jewish historians of the time tried to work it out and they think it's about the seven weeks. So you have Passover, Feast of Weeks, um, and then they celebrate Pentecost as the day that Israel received God's words to them. They received God's law. So Pentecost became a celebration of the receiving of God's law. So at, at Sinai, when Moses uh, meets God, Moses climbs up the mountain and he goes into God's presence and at, at the top, God meets with Moses and he kind of shrouds the mountain in, in clouds and uh, lightning and they talk together. So God and Moses talk. And at this point, Moses receives the law from God. He receives uh, like so many things, but he also receives the ten words or the ten commandments that God writes for him on a tablet of stone. And it's about 12 chapters. So Moses goes up, and then about 12 chapters later in Exodus, he comes back down the mountain. So Moses ascends the mountain, and he descends with the law written on stone. At Pentecost, 50 days earlier, there had been the celebration of the Passover when Jesus had died. Ten days before Pentecost, Jesus ascended into heaven. And at Pentecost itself, God's Spirit came down, not to bring the law of God on tablets of stone, but to write the law of God on the hearts and minds of all his believers. Next. So like I said, the Rosetta Stone, it's a, it's a way of just paying a load of money to get to learn a new language. They advertise on TV, and you can all find all sorts of languages on there and, and learn them. So if you want to learn a new language, um, that's an option. And there are other options out there. Um, in the interest of fair advertising. Um, so at Pentecost, these kind of once fearful disciples of Jesus go from timid people in a little room to outside speaking to a crowd of thousands of people. And Luke tells us where they're all, where they're all from. They come from all over the kind of known ancient world. They're represented with the whole world. They come from all around the kind of Mediterranean. Um, any country basically that was bordering the Mediterranean was represented at Pentecost and a few others. The whole world was present for Pentecost. And they'd have had a whole array of, of different languages um, that they normally spoke. But apparently they, the majority of them would have spoken at least two or three languages altogether. So a lot of them would have been able to speak some Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew. And apparently even Latin was on the rise as, as Rome was on the rise. However, the disciples began to speak to the people and there was no problems in, in communicating because God, by his spirit, had given the people the power to speak in new languages that they had never learned. They were telling people about Jesus. Next week, we'll look at uh, Peter's sermon that he gives at Pentecost. Um, but God wanted not one person to miss out on hearing about him. So he made the message understandable to everyone. Can you just imagine being in the crowd of the thousands of people that were there that day? It just seems amazing, doesn't it? That in a kind of, in, in a funny way, Luke adds an extra detail for us in, in verse seven. He says, "Utterly amazed, they asked, are not these men who are speaking Galileans?" So as I was reading through this, when he 
and one of the commentators said what the Galileans were like. Um, it wasn't the most polite. He kind of said, when, when, and when they say, aren't these people speaking to us Galileans? Um, the Galileans were a... They weren't from the kind of cosmopolitan south of the country. They were from a kind of farming, rural, <coughs> northern town where people were just considered a bit simple. Um, you know, they were the kind of country bumpkin type people. People that you might expect from somewhere like... They were the simple folk. <laughs> um, and they had a really broad accent. And, and when they say, they kind of looked at each other and said, aren't these people... Aren't they Galileans speaking to I think they could say that because if you can imagine... Some, I don't know if you um, grew up around here or not, but imagine somebody with a really broad Yorkshire accent in school learning French. I sometimes find it really funny when you hear kids like talk in French and they've got really thick accents and you think, you don't say that. That's not quite how it would, should really sound. I mean, my French accent's not brilliant, but it's not like twisted by a really thick, broad Yorkshire accent. But when they're speaking, the people who are listening to them are thinking, I can understand every word he's saying, but he's not a local. He's got a really thick accent. I'm pretty sure he's from Galilee. So when they're they're listening to this. They know where these guys are from. I just thought it was quite funny that Luke puts that in there. He doesn't make them sound like the perfect fluent French speaker because a fluent French speaker wasn't much use in the ancient uh, Middle East. But, you know, somebody would speak like whatever the other languages were. Um, they knew where they were from. But, but we see throughout the book of Acts that God doesn't want his message of the gospel to be hindered by social status or by background. And we'll see those things as we move on. But here at Pentecost... God doesn't want his message of the gospel to be hindered even by language. So God gives them the ability to speak other ones. But as we flick back a bit further into the kind of broad picture of God's story, if we look back at Genesis chapter 12, uh, through summer a guy was speaking for us on the story of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to a guy called Abraham. And it's a promise that all the families on the earth will be blessed um, kind of through him and because of him. And here at Pentecost we see all the families of the earth represented and they're blessed by the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And for those that are converted, they'll go home and be missionaries for him in their new normal lives. And if you flip back an extra chapter to chapter 11, we see something I think even more incredible. In chapter 11 of Genesis, we have the account of the Tower of Babel. Um, it's the point in, early on in, in, the, in Bible history where mankind decided we don't need God anymore. You know, we can do this on our own. So what they decided to do to prove that that was the case, that we didn't need God, we could do everything we need on our own. We were more important and better and cleverer than, than God would ever be. What they decided to do was to build a mighty temple-like tower that would reach up to the heavens and would be the most amazing piece of architectural building work ever. And that would show God that they didn't need him because they could conquer you know, the heights of the heavens. Because that's where God lived, they thought, up in, up in the sky. And it would be just beautiful and massive. And they thought, that'll show God that we don't need him. The problem is, when you read through Genesis 11 a great story because at some point in the story when they're building the tower one guy turns to his left 
to his co-worker on this project and goes, can you pass me a hammer? And the guy who's on his left turns to his right and goes, no, je ne comprends pas. That's French uh, with a thick accent, if you would like to know. Um, at that point, God comes into human history and goes, I'm just going to mix up the languages here a little bit. And he gives them different languages. The building of the Tower of Babel just gets no, doesn't really get off the ground, you know, doesn't get anywhere because they can't communicate. They say, we can do without God. And God says, you can't do without me. And in a very kind of witty way, he steps into human history and just gives a nice little spin on what's going on. They become incomprehensible to each other. At Pentecost, what God does is he goes to that world where he'd mixed up the languages in the first place and says, I have some good news that I want you all to know. He took all the nations again, and instead of judging them like he did at Babel, he completely flips that on his head, and he gives the good news of Jesus to the whole world in a language that they will understand. Because no barrier but God is too great. The languages that he mixed up in the first place, he reversed so they could understand what Jesus is all about at Pentecost. When you see that, I just think, isn't it amazing how God works throughout the whole of his history? However, when somebody talks about God, um, and particularly here, there's, there's often a response, and there can be two kinds of responses. There can be a kind of acceptance and awe, or something else. At Pentecost, they're there, they're talking in different languages. I think, I don't know about you, but maybe you could think, if you see like local kids talking and trying to talk French, they've got really thick Yorkshire accents, you maybe do think that they are a bit drunk, but um, because of the way they sound. But the response here is, they're, they're, they're drunk. That, that must be what it is. So there's some people that stand and they hear the good news of Jesus and just think, this is amazing. But in verse 13, he says, However, some, however, made fun of them and said that they have had too much wine. So not everyone responded like this, but a few people responded saying, yeah, they're drunk, they have too much wine. We'll find out uh, next week, and now is a kind of precursor to that, that Peter says they're not drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Nine o'clock in the morning. Now, really, by anyone's standards, being thoroughly drunk at nine o'clock in the morning is... I don't know if you can say impressive, but it's definitely surprising. I got up at seven this morning and carried on drinking whiskey. No, it's not true. To see if it was possible, that's not true at all. Um, I didn't get up at seven either. Uh, <laughs> if I'd said that, Hannah would tell you that that's not true. So whenever God moves, there are always different responses. Either we stand back and go, wow. And, and we can be so glad to know this God that's doing it. Or people mock saying that you know, religious people are a bit, a bit simple and country bumpkin-like and, and they've got silly accents or that they're just gullible and they'll take anything that, that's thrown at them. I just want to pause here just for a second and say if, if that's what you're thinking right now, if you're thinking that these religious folk are just a bit simple and a bit gullible and it's just all a little bit too ludicrous that God could do this work, I want to encourage you just to take a couple of minutes to, to ask God and say, actually, 
that is a snap judgment of your heart. Take a couple of minutes and say, God, I think this sounds too far-fetched and just a lot of nonsense. And ask God if he'll open your eyes to the truth of what he says in the Bible. So as we finish, I want to um, finish with this idea. No ending yet. Um, Acts is a bit of an open-ended book in the Bible. There's a couple of books in the Bible that I think are almost open-ended. I'm not suggesting that we should be uh, writing stuff down and like sticking it in, thinking we can get a few extra, you know, we can get the church to do certain things or we can get new things from God by putting in. And all the disciples received a Ferrari, glue it in there, Acts 35. Um, no. But I think the book of Acts is a kind of open-ended book because when Ian started the series off, he said um, that the Gospels are kind of Jesus ruling over his his church from the earth and then from the book of Acts we see that Jesus is ruling from heaven and Jesus doesn't stop ruling at heaven, through ruling from heaven at the end of Acts 28 Jesus is still ruling from heaven today so in that sense Acts is an open ended book Jesus is still ruling over his church by his spirit today and he still wants the gospel to spread he still wants people to come to know and love him today so what I want to do as we close is I want to challenge each of us um, with a few questions. So here's my first one. Is that I want to challenge you as a church from this passage. Do you and do we live as though Pentecost hasn't happened? Are we sometimes a bit more timid and shy and worried to go out into the world? than God's spirit would want us to be. The next one is this. Do we live in the light of the truth that God is in us by his spirit and he wants us to make and he wants to make a difference in every area of our life and our church. Third one is this. Do we believe that God can still do wonderful and amazing things today? like save people from death and hell by the good news of the gospel. Hopefully the answer to that last one is definitely yes. Sometimes the other ones are more difficult to think about. I think if we live like the church at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, we need to see the truth of God the Holy Spirit so that we can be bold and brave and courageous, humble gospel-centered, God-glorifying, mission-focused believers in Jesus and in the power of his spirit. And that's where we'll leave it today. Come back next week to hear what Peter says to the crowd. So let's pray and then we'll um, sing as we close. Father, we thank you for for your words. Father, we thank you that the Bible is just such an amazing book. Father, we thank you that it shows us the, the whole history of your story working in human life from the beginning to the end. Father, I thank you that at Pentecost you came into this world and you did some absolutely amazing things. Father, you showed that the gospel is for all people, that all Christians are to be uh, your spirit-filled believers. 
Father, thank you that you, um, you don't just want leaders to be people who are going out and sharing the gospel, but you want all believers everywhere to be doing that. Father, I thank you that by your spirit we can know you through Jesus. Father, I thank you that by your spirit we can um, know what it is to be the church together. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your spirit. Father, I pray that you would help us to be um, the church that is more like the church towards the end of Acts rather than the church at the beginning. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be bold and courageous in going out and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus because we still believe that you can save people from death and hell today. Father, I pray that you would make us uh, the church that you want us to be. Amen.